It is a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. Thank you, Celeste, for inviting me. Thank you, Pastor Jim, for allowing me to continue in worship in the Word. We're rehearsing for heaven. You know, most of those words came from Revelation chapter 5, picture of the church in heaven. We're rehearsing for heaven. Let's keep doing that. Um, you can turn to your, uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, turn or tap to Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> we'll be focusing on verses 11 through 22. As uh, Celeste said, we we live in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, planting Christ Community Church in Dearborn, Michigan. I'm actually from, uh, born and raised in Dearborn, Michigan. I lived around the world and came back again, and uh, kind of a townie there. But uh, people have a lot of interesting, let's say, ideas of what it must be like to live in Dearborn and to plant a church there. I regularly receive emails from um, people, sometimes friends, sometimes people who just found us on the internet, uh, emails from people asking me if something is true that they saw on the internet about Dearborn. And uh, what they usually show me or send me a link to is some kind of website or article that describes Dearborn as a, uh, a city, an American city, uh, under Sharia law. And uh, I've heard the phrase, a no-go zone for Christians. Um, I've lived in Dearborn much of my life. I've lived in the Middle East, and I can assure you that Dearborn is not under Sharia law. And uh, the, the church actually is alive and well. And Jesus is at work. He's at work all around the world, whether we can see it or not. I bring all of that up because these websites and... Um, these kinds of articles, they have an impact on believers who, um, who maybe take those kinds of things into their hearts. Uh, sometimes those websites fan the flames of fear, and then the fear undermines the mission of God, or at least our desire to be a part of the mission of God, it, it makes us begin to think that maybe there's some people some, in some places that are just beyond the reach of the gospel, but the gospel can't quite reach those people. I wonder if in our hearts we still hold on to some ideas of who those people are. It could be any number of people. But in your heart, in my heart, they have become those people. The, the problem with that is that when those people do come to Jesus Christ, come to faith in Christ, and they, and they are, they are coming to Jesus Christ. They're coming to Christ in Dearborn and in the Middle East and all over the world. And when they do, and they come to our churches looking for a family to be a part of, will they be received? Uh, will they be received as brothers and sisters in Christ, or will they be received as those kind of Christians? Maybe a second-class kind of 
Christian. The Apostle Paul actually had to deal with that kind of thing, even in his day. This is an old problem. This is an old bent in our hearts. It's nothing new, really. Uh, There was a false teaching in the time of, of Paul in his day that began to spring up in church after church. Uh, and at one point, it, it, it even began to sway the apostle Peter. Uh, you can read about that in Galatians chapter 2. And Paul actually went toe-to-toe with the apostle Peter over this and rebuked him for the way that he was treating some people as those kinds of Christians. See, there was this teaching among Jewish background Christians. Uh, they called themselves the circumcision party. And it began to, they, they began to teach uh, their teaching. And what they believed was that you had to submit to all of the ceremonial laws of Moses and the Torah in order to be considered a true and full-on Christian. You had to even receive the marks of circumcision in order to be considered a true follower of Jesus. And those who did not do that, those who did not follow the old ceremonial laws, those who were not circumcised, they were considered to be outsiders, the the uncircumcision, they called them. And, And this is actually mentioned in the beginning of our passage this morning, right in verse 11. Uh, so Paul, he, he's, I think he's preempting this problem in the, with the readers of this letter uh, that would have gone to the church at Ephesus, and he encourages the Gentile background believers among, in that church that they are, in fact, true believers, and that this was actually God's plan all along, that they would be incorporated into the family of the church. And I think to one degree or another, we all have this tendency to build up such walls. I I wonder if we would turn, we heard beautifully read in in various languages just the latter part of this passage. I wonder if you would read with me uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 22. This is uh, God's word for God's people. And my prayer is, is as I read and as the preaching uh, is, is received by you, that, that the Spirit of God would, do the, would take the, work, the Word of God and do the work of God in all of our hearts, my heart included. Let's read. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the, uncirc- uh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressed in ordinances that uh, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to, to God in one body, 
through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Yes, we all have a tendency, and I think we need to admit this, uh, to, to build up walls. To, it's, it's, a, it's a safeguarding of our hearts. It's, it's difficult to cross cultures and races and ethnicities, and, and it's, it's uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable. And we have a tendency to build up these walls for people, and, and then they have to climb over these walls in order to, for us to be con, able to consider them as insiders. Sometimes churches uh, will treat people who come to faith from different religions or races as second-class believers, as we said. Perhaps they're welcome to worship with us, but, but they're put in a separate service or a whole separate church. I've seen this in the Middle East. Uh, we went to a church when we lived in Jordan for a year, a long time ago, and uh, the church that we went to, uh, it, was, it, was, it had two services, but one service was for Jordanians, and the other service was for Iraqis. They all speak Arabic, but in their minds, though, they were so different from each other, they had to meet in different times and places. Do we do that in our hearts? I think if we're honest... There's all, we all have a seed of that, the impulse of that in our hearts. But the message to Ephesus and the, the message of this passage that I believe that God wants to say to us this, this morning from his word is that Jesus actually tore down those walls in order to build up his house. Look at verse 11 with me. What do you see? What do you see? We see in verses 11 and 12, we see people who are trapped behind a wall. In verse, we see the word therefore. Now that word points us back to what just came before. Don't ignore those connecting words. Therefore reminds us that we've got to take in mind everything that came before it. And what comes before it, of course, is verses 1 through 10. And that's where Paul reminds his readers that they were at one time what I call the walking dead. Verses 1 to 3, they were completely contaminated by sin, consumed by death, and controlled by Satan. And they were walking around in this state. Paul even includes himself in that description. But then there's this glorious turn of events. It turns the corner in verse 4. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What a glorious 
but God in verse 4. And the reason that we were shown this mercy because of God's great love and His grace through Jesus was so that we would then walk around, not in sin anymore, but walk in the good works of faith that God had prepared beforehand for us to walk in, that we might be His workmanship. Now, that's the gospel message. Does that sound familiar to you? I hope it does. That's the gospel message. And in verse 11, we have therefore. It's connected. All of what has gone before now informs what comes after. In light of what God has done for you in Christ, in light of your salvation, in light of the good works God prepared for you to walk in by His grace, therefore what follows is a result of that gospel. It is a fruit of that gospel at work in our lives. So as we, as we continue in this passage, I'd like you to be asking yourselves, is this gospel fruit seen in my life and in my church? The gospel fruit that we're going to be discussing together, does this gospel fruit, uh, it, it, does it dis- is it displayed? Can I see it in my life and in my church? So Paul goes on, he, he says, remember Remember, you Gentiles who were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision, remember how you were indeed on the other side of a great wall. He agrees. There was a great wall there. You didn't have the circumcision of Abraham and Moses, and that made you different than those who did. You you were indeed at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from citizenship in the kingdom of God, Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise that God had made to those people. So you had no hope and you had no God in the world. There was no future for you. And at this point, if we just stop right there, it sounds like Paul's actually agreeing with the circumcision party, doesn't it? I mean, he's he's describing all these ways that they are separate. And I want to pause for a minute here. Uh, Just notice, how how can Paul equate all of these Old Testament descriptions that we just looked at with separated from Christ? How does he do that? He's made a shift there. How is that possible? Well, it's because as he goes on, we'll see that being separated from Christ, that's the only thing that matters now that Christ has come. That's the only thing that matters. In verses 13 to 18, that's the next section we'll look at. In verse 13, we see the word, but. Oh, there it is again. There it is again, just like in chapter 2, verse 4, just in the previous section where Paul exclaims, but God, in contrast to our desperate, sinful state that we had been in, here, after describing the separated alienated, estranged Gentiles who had no hope, no relationship to God in verses uh, 11 and 12. Here in verse 13, he says, but now, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. It's a result of the gospel. It's a fruit of the gospel. And it says that Jesus, therefore, is our peace in verse 14. 
He's made us both one. He's broken down in his flesh this dividing wall of hostility. How does he do that? I'm glad you asked. Paul tells us. He says, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. In what way has Jesus broken down the laws and ordinances in his flesh? What does that mean? It sounds like Paul's talking in code here. Well, think about the context. What is he talking about? He's talking about circumcision. That's the issue between these two people, these two groups of people. What was circumcision? It was a sign. It was a sign required by the ceremonial law of Moses. It was an ordinance. It was a command. And it showed and reminded the Old Testament believer that if he broke the covenant, it was a sign of the covenant, if he broke that covenant, this sign reminded him that he would be cut off from the covenant people. That's what this symbolized, what circumcision symbolized. He, if you broke the covenant, you would be cut off from the commonwealth of Israel, no longer a participant in that covenant of promise, but a stranger having no hope and without God in the world. Now, how does Jesus abolish that? Well, it's similar to the way that the cross abolishes the need for sacrifices. I noticed that you didn't have a lamb sacrifice up here this morning, and there's a reason for that, except that it's kind of, besides the point, it's kind of messy, uh, but uh, there, we don't need to do that anymore because Christ is our sacrificial lamb. He, for once and always, has taken the sacrifice required in, his, in himself upon the cross, and we look to Jesus in faith, and that sacrifice provided by God in faith, and in faith we are then considered part of the covenant people of God. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins go upon Jesus. Now, Jesus, just like any Jewish baby, and we read about this in the gospel, he was, he was circumcised as a baby, but he was different than every other Jew. He was perfect. He was sinless. He deserved no punishment. He needed no sacrifice for himself. He needed no sign to tell him that if he broke the covenant, he would be cut off from his people. That would not be an issue for Jesus. He would never be cut off. However, Jesus did suffer what the sign of circumcision pointed to. He was cut off. And not for his own sins, he was innocent. He was cut off. His blood was spilled upon the cross, at the cross, for our sins. And so for Jesus, circumcision meant something very different. It meant that we would never again be cut off from God if we put our faith in God through Jesus Christ. So it's not, it's not our obedience it's not our sacrifice that makes us a part of the people of God, that keeps us in covenant relationship with God. It's Jesus' obedience. It's His sacrifice. And that means that there's no more need for the sign of the Old Testament covenant that tells you that you would be cut off. Because in Christ, you can't be cut off. That's been abolished, uh, to use Paul's words here. And that means, 
That means for these people, the wall that these ceremonies created between Jews and Gentiles are also abolished. The wall between the circumcision party and the uncircumcision has been broken down once and for all. No more wall building. I wonder, just pause here and ask you first before going on, have you had one of these but now in Christ Jesus experiences in your own life? Does verses 11 and 12, verses 1 to 3 and 11 and 12, does that describe you at one time in your life? But God, but in Christ Jesus, now you are different than you were. I hope that you have. I hope that you have trusted in Christ who is the sacrifice that God provided for the forgiveness of your sins. If, if you have not, I would call you, I would invite you to repent of your sins and put your trust in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ that you might be once and for all included in his people and never again be cut off from God. My friends, do you see that this is a package deal? This is a package deal. As I make an appeal to people who may not have put their faith in Jesus Christ, my appeal has to go on. There's a therefore. The invitation continues. And would you then be incorporated, join, come and be a part of the family of God? The gospel doesn't just end with repent and be saved. It's repent, be saved, and become a part of the people of God. Be part of the family of God. It's a package deal because of that, therefore, right there in verse 11. And now I want you to, to, to notice what Jesus is doing in verses 15 to 22. Uh, look at what Jesus creates in verse 15. Look at what Jesus reconciles in verses 16 to 18. Look at what Jesus preaches in verse 17 and what Jesus builds by the Spirit in verses 19 to 22. First, what, what Jesus creates. Look at verse 15. Jesus has broken down our walls of hostility so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This one new man, you could translate that word a new humanity, one new humankind. And this new humanity is like, it's like a humanity reboot, right? Jesus is recreating a new humankind out of everyone who puts their faith in him. It's not just about me and Jesus riding off into the sunset. It's about becoming part of the new humanity project that Jesus has initiated. Jesus himself is the first of this new humanity. And that's why in other places in the Bible, Paul would refer to Jesus as the new Adam. He's the new one. He's the new man. And then those of us who trust in Jesus Christ are in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in the beloved, is, is said 13 times in chapter 1 of this letter. And those who are in Christ then are part of this new humanity in the new man, in the new Adam. Now, this new humanity in Jesus is like the old humanity uh, in Adam in some ways, but in other ways, it's not like the old humanity in some very important ways. The new humanity is like 
the old humanity in Adam because the old humanity in Adam was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. There was no distinction in Adam. There was Adam and Eve. That's it. One kind of people. There were not many kinds of people. There was just one kind of people. And so this new humanity has an identity that's like that. It's, a, it's, it's one. There's not these dividing walls between them. And so that's how it's like the old Adam in some ways. But it's not like the old Adam in some very important ways, in the ways that we saw. It's, the new humanity is not trapped in sin. It's not controlled by Satan. And it's not destined for death. No, the new humanity uh, is free and forgiven of sin. The new humanity is not controlled by Satan, and the new humanity is destined for eternal life together. Verse 16, we see what Jesus reconciles. So that's one picture. He, He goes on to another picture. Jesus has broken down our walls of hostility so that he might reconcile us both to God, first to God, we talked about that in the first 10 verses, to God, but also in one body through the cross. This is what the cross accomplishes. Back in verse uh, 23 of, of chapter 1, I made reference to chapter 1, at the end of that, um, that long sentence, the, the uh, run-on sentence that Paul uh, speaks there, writes there, he talks about Jesus as being head of his body, and he calls the church his body. And so we know that when he talks about the body in this letter, he's talking about the church. And then, uh, if we look forward into the letter, we see this word body coming up several times in chapter 4, talking about our unity. And then in chapter 5 of Ephesians, we have that famous passage about marriage. And guess what? The image of a body shows up there too. It's Christ is the head of his body, the church, but here it's like a marriage. The head is like a husband, and the body is like a bride. This is all family language. And so the picture that is being painted here is one of family. It's, a, it's about identity. Now think about it. I'm actually doing a, a wedding next Saturday, and, uh, and of course I'm preaching from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And the picture there, of course, is of this uh, bride and her husband. Is a, it is a picture of the gospel. And the gospel, the love of Jesus for his church, is a picture of marriage. And what happens at the end of that wedding, I will now uh, present to the congregation Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. Mr. and Mrs. That's not their name. Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And... They both, have the new, they both now have the same last name. The bride has taken on the identity, the family name of her husband's family. And that's what's happened with us. We as Christ's bride have taken on the identity of our husband, Jesus Christ. And that is our primary identity now. And so it doesn't matter what culture or what race or what ethnicity we come from, we have a primary identity. Now, we will, of course, 
celebrate our former identities, our secondary identities. We celebrate uh, race and ethnicity and culture because we see that in heaven, and we want our church to look like it will one day in heaven. But we are a new family, and this new family identity precedes all other identity descriptions in our lives. We're not, first of all, black, brown, white, yellow, or red. We are not, first of all, from this culture or that culture. We are, first of all, identified with Christ, our husband. All other identities, as important as they are for shaping who we are individually, are secondary to that identity. Verse 17, how does Jesus make all this known? How do people come to know that they can come to be a part of this new humanity project, this new family through the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul tells us that it's actually through preaching. Verses 17 and 18, we see Paul's telling us that Jesus has preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. And this word preach is actually the verbal form of the noun gospel. It's good news. And so Jesus has gospelized peace both to those who are near, and in this context, those are the Jewish background believers, and those who are far, the ones from all the nations, the Gentile background believers. And what he does in this verse, in verse 17, is he alludes to two verses back in Isaiah uh, chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 57. You don't need to turn there, but let me read that for you. Now, Isaiah 52, 7 says, and you'll probably be more familiar with this quotation from Romans when Paul quotes it there, how beautiful Upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. That's the part that he quotes. Who brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation. And it goes on. And then Isaiah 57, 19. That says that uh, the words have been put into the mouth of the preacher. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And so Paul has brought those two things together and he's said, this is what Jesus has preached. This is what Jesus has gospelized. This is good news, both to the near and to the far. And now I want you to know that in the last section of Isaiah, there's something going on. And there's something sort of background behind those verses that Paul quotes. God was calling the people of Isaiah's day to repent of their wickedness and to humble their hearts. And he called people of faith to, put the, to, to have faith in God from both Jews who are near and Gentiles who are far. And he called them to take refuge in the Lord. And one of Isaiah's major aims at, the last, at this part of, 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 his, um, of his prophecy is to ask a question, to challenge his listeners with a question. He's asking, who is it that will be inside and be included in the people of God in the last days. Who do you think it is, people of Isaiah's day? We don't know what their answer is, but God gives an answer in the following chapters. In Isaiah 56, we have this strange picture of the temple, and it's called a house of prayer for all nations, and there are foreigners, Gentiles, those who are far away, actually serving like priests inside the temple. That would have been very strange for a Jew of Isaiah's day to hear. 
And Isaiah says, this is what it's going to be like in the last days. In the last section of Isaiah, uh, this is what Paul is bringing to bear in his letter here to the people of Ephesus. And so we need to keep an eye out for this. Where is this strange thing where, where foreigners are now a part of the people of God? Where does that happen? How does this happen? Well, it happens, of course, in verse 18, responding in faith to this preaching results in gaining access to God through Christ in one spirit to the Father. So it's access through Christ that we have to the Father. That's how it happens. It's the cross. It's not all of these walls that were talked about before. It's not any of the ceremonial laws of the Torah. That's how foreigners can find themselves in midst of the people of God. It's through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit making access to the Father. So preaching the gospel of peace actually creates a new kind of humanity. It reconciles people to God and its people from far and near in one body. And now we see in verse 19 all of the descriptions of separation and alienation and estrangement from God and from Christ that we saw in verses 12 gets reversed in verse 19. So that in Christ, Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but they are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, members of God's family now. This leads us to the final part of Jesus' building project that Paul describes here. It all culminates in this, in verses 19 to 22. Jesus has broken down our walls to build up his Father's house, a new temple for the new covenant. The Old Testament temple was the place where God's presence dwelled on earth. If we were to just sum up the history of the tabernacle and the temple, we would say that that was the place where God's presence dwelt in a manifest way on earth among his people. Now he's applying that to the church at Ephesus, I wonder if that is applied to your church and to my church. Is your church the place where God's manifest presence is? Say yes. It is. <laughs> it is. We, the church, are the place of God's special presence today. And as we have seen in verse 17, God's presence is known by the preaching of the gospel. Not only this, but according to verse 18, this temple, it's not a static thing. It's not sort of like built once, like the Temple of Solomon. It's, it's, a, it's a temple that's growing. It's grown. It's being joined together by this preaching. Where do I get that in the text? How is it built by preaching? Look at verse 20. Do you notice this? It says, this temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What do all those things have in common? It's the word of God, right? The prophets were the mouthpiece of God. The apostles were the mouthpiece of God and wrote scripture. They all wrote scripture. And Jesus himself, the cornerstone, he is the word incarnate. Jesus was God preaching to the world in human form. It's the word of God. And that's the foundation of the building project. That's the foundation of this temple. And that's how 
the church has always grown. Just, just make, take a scan through the book of Acts, and what do you see? Every time increase and multiplication is described, it's described as the increase of the, word of, the God, of the word of God. And the word of God multiplied and increased over and over again, all the way through uh, the book of Acts. This is how God builds his church. It's the spirit of God taking the word of God and doing the work of God in people's lives, and he builds his church church. That's the picture that we have here. And because that word goes out to all of the nations, both near and too far, Isaiah 56 is fulfilled because both Jews and Gentiles become one new temple identified with Jesus. So what does that mean? That means that the only thing that determines who can be fully integrated part, a fully integrated part of our churches, your church, my church, It's only those who respond to the preaching of that gospel and become part of this new man, this one body, the new temple by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. Jesus broke down our walls to build his father's house. Let's not us be building those walls up again. God's work in this universe is to unite all things together in Christ. That comes from Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. And this building project of the church is part of God's uniting work in heaven, all things in heaven and on earth. So we're either working in stream with what God is doing and uniting all things together in Christ, or working against that. I'd like to be a part of God's building project. I'd like to be in step, flowing with everything in the universe where it's going to unite all things in Jesus Christ. And we give a picture, of course, don't we, of what that looks like. We have a little glimpse of heaven from Revelation, and that's what I'm going to close with. We want our church to reflect the way the church looks in eternity. This is what the church looks like in eternity. This is Revelation 7, 9 to 10. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, Seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.